velonimurgo ken lenkeri zekiole podcasti bo saitre besculo ai besi teltufi du le primi hete podcasti Welcome to Conlangery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the roadways is Jake Malloy. Hello. And over in Connecticut, we have KBOM. Hello. Back for two people back for a second time. This is uh, my experiment with trying to throw people into a, a mix and, and rotate hosts and stuff. So today I, I uh, have Jake and Kay on to talk about language and identity. This is um, a, a topic can, that can more inform sort of con-worlding and even um, incorporating language into uh, storytelling uh, because it's a lot about how, you know, people interact with language and how language can identify you by language. Obviously, like... The clearest thing is that language is very much tied to ethnic identity, right? But race, gender, um, uh, sexual orientation, uh, gender identity, your occupation, your social class, all kinds of things, basically any facet of human like group identities can be sort of indexed by language. And we're going to explore different ways of... Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I um, Jake, you 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 gave us a, a little bit of uh, an outline to go by. I think we're going to just start where you started. So I thought one of the most obvious um, ways that people do it is by kind of naming those groups that you talked about. Like they're um, within one society and one language. They're often um, kind of social groups, and those groups have names. And by giving them names, we kind of, you know, Put them into relationship with each other, and and those can vary in in lots of different ways. Yeah, um, like definitely, this is this is more about. So there's there's yeah, your group. You can name people by sex, age, race, gender identity, all those things, and um, we won't get into like necessarily offensive ways to, to name people, but the way that you do call a group does say something about what you think about that group and and uh, such. So, um, uh, thinking about that, so... I was just going to highlight one of the things that I think is most important about, um, as we get into the various other parts, is uh, a notion of intersectionality of identities. And I so, historically, in the U.S., that um, was kind of particular to talking about how... Um, gender identity and race identities can um, interact um, in ways that may be unexpected um, from viewing either race or um, gender separately. But then um, kind of as that word has taken on um, a broader meaning, it's incorporated ideas of how um, when you see a person, um, or in this case, maybe when you hear a person, you may, you're not necessarily going to be just grabbing one category, but maybe um, a few different types of categories of, of identity at the same time. Yeah, and I think 
I, I think too that that relies on cultural prestige and a lot of things too. Um, so in societies where education is a huge um, classifier that carries a lot of status, um, you'll find people using more, I guess, educated and there are quotes around that dialects in a lot more formal settings um, to show status in some cases, or because they were brought up by people who were already in that kind of educated social class. And for people who are trying to move into that social class, it can be kind of hard in some ways. And so that's one way in which those categories can interact. Like for instance, um, I grew up in the rural Midwest and I read a lot of books at a college reading level at a young age, but had never heard those words out loud. And I went to college on the East Coast and I didn't pronounce some of the words um, correctly. And there was actually a term for that that I discovered, which, um, you know, was I, I hadn't really realized that, you know, like, you know, like the book pronunciation was something that people actually noticed. But, yeah, I think it's it's also that like if you have people who are coming into an area like in a conquest situation, um, ways of speaking are going to be different because especially if it's um, cross lingual you'll have um, speech, pa- speech patterns that the people in the area being conquered have because they're not even speaking their native language as well. So the, there, there, there's a lot of stuff about power and, and, and prestige and stuff wrapped up in that. Um, uh, I, I have a similar thing. Occasionally had words the, like that. Um, I think the only one I remember is people made fun of me for saying cacophony instead of cacophony. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, um, that's one thing of of prestige. But then at the same time, like there can be another uh, side to that of the speaking. The prestige variety is not always um, like accepted in all situations. It's accepted in yeah. formal situations, but with your own family, it may actually feel uncomfortable to. Um, and uh, or ev- they it may even hinder understanding. Like so, my wife is a very educated Chinese person, and she typically with her friends, her Chinese friends, speaks standard Mandarin. But if she goes back to her hometown, uh, which is in the supposedly Mandarin-speaking area, her parents will not speak in standard Mandarin. And she will not be speaking in the same way that she would to, you know, Chinese friends from all over China that she does with her parents. She will speak in the local um, variety of Chinese to her parents because that's what they will understand best. Um, so it's it's there's always, I think, some degree of bi-dialectalism. That, I mean, we're jumping all around the nice <laughs> structure now, but... Uh, there's there's always like this could be figured into storytelling too like you're often you you'll often see characters you you know you could have characters be in between identities and in between situations trying to navigate which you know or well successfully navigating what what variety to use in which situation yeah and uh one more note that i wanted to make about kind of the notion of prestige is that um that always has a field to it, right? You, there's always a context that says like, this is pre- prestigious to these people. And so you may think that you're being using a prestigious 
um, variety of of your language, but with a with a different group of people, they may not find that prestigious. And so there's mm-hmm. there are different contexts. Contexts, yeah. right? Um, you actually had um, some examples in here. If we can jump around a little bit, um, you talked about it, it, in under your linguistic politics and policing, mm-hmm. Jake. Like you put in some examples of like. There are tests of affiliation, shibboleth, um, in different societies. And you, you posted, I, I mean, it's exaggerated for comedy, but a couple right. of Key and Peel skits about, you know, Key and Peel are two biracial comedians. Mm-hmm. And they, by default, talk a lot like white people. But they, they're like talking about how, you know, if there are a bunch of black people together... They want to like try to sound more black, right? Right, or at least not be the whitest sounding. I think that's <laughs> the most key, yeah. right? Um, so, did you you link to like two of the sketches, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, which is I think a lot of like a lot of social commentary too, because I think that I was, um, I think that I was reading um, about Get Out, one of the um, of the film that came out very recently um, about that trip to um a the white girlfriend's um family that goes horribly wrong and turns into a horror story that it's a lot of yeah it's it's a lot of of different issues at the at the same time and yeah 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 but they do a lot of a lot of linguistic commentary in their sketches um mm-hmm. they also i think have one i don't think it's one of the ones here but about pronunciation and like the way names are constructed and you know, different pronunciation styles when you're using, you know, the same, you know, 26 letter alphabet. Um, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, don't... I mean, that's kind of just dialect variation and, uh, the, and that's, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is you have people navigating between different dialect groups and there's there maybe, maybe there's the prestige dialect, that may be acceptable in formal contexts all o- all over the place, but even like being within your group, you want to speak more like your group. There's uh, like a concept of sociolinguistics of called accommodation too, where um, when you have two speakers, they sort of like start to talk more like each other uh, over time, and it just sort of depends on the socio social. It's sort of depends on the social identities of the two people and to, to what degree that they accommodate. But like, it's just in general, people start to talk a little bit more like each other as they're talking to each other, I guess, sort of to, to, um, form sort of a rapport while they're talking. Um, yeah, I think that's mirror neurons as well. Yeah. Yeah. With the, with the empathic stuff in the brain. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about, um, actually naming groups though because there are a lot there's there there can be a lot to that because first of all there is the name that the group calls itself and then the name that the the names that other people put onto that there's names chain names of groups change over time and sometimes that reflects changes in uh changes in social values or changes in how the group is perceived um uh and and just giving a name to a group also like 
just makes society more aware of that group. Um, Kay, coming from the LGBT community, I think you could probably uh, speak to that a little bit, right? Because a lot of the hit recent history of LGBT activism is like just putting names to these different identities, right? Yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of like linguistic I think identity formation that happens especially in places on uh Tumblr for example. Um and it's very much driven by youth who um try to find um terminologies and ways of using um I think a combination of like Latin and Greek roots as you know one often will do for a variety of of terms uh to like make um, to make words for identities that they have, um, so that that is true as well. Um, but I think it's I think it's even deeper than that. It's that there are words that are used, but then it's also like a sense of like reclaiming words um, within a community as well. So like the word queer, for example, um, mm -hmm. it started to increase in usage. Um, I think about a year or two ago, and there were actually a few pieces from older people in the community who'd still had that used as a slur while um, being um, the victims of like hate violence and who didn't really feel like that term was appropriate. And so there are sometimes, I think, like age-related divides within communities where above a certain age, you know, it's, it's less likely along like a statistical, you know, sampling to be considered an okay term than it is among, you know, like a different demographic. And mm -hmm. those things also, you know, they're all normal distributions. It's never going to be like everybody who is 65 or older says this, everybody under 65 says that. And so I think I think it's a lot of a lot of that too. It's both like the the giving of names, but the also the just the way that names are used across generations and the ways that they bear or don't bear stigma. Um, but like what you were saying, I think about um, in group and out group naming is that that's happened a lot in the USA with um, the names of indigenous tribes. And so right. it's not just like you know like the one group. You know what the people who hate you's name for you is versus your name for yourselves. It's which group of people the European settlers met first leads to which name people are looking up on Wikipedia, which might not actually be the name that you call yourselves. And right. so, and, and sometimes those names can be like really offensive or, or like yeah. things like um, enemy or, or what, whatnot um yeah and and that happens all over the place um you know the there's a cluster of native american groups in the uh southwest that are all dene which dene in athabascan is is um people right but like we have all kinds of different names for them that come from you know other groups or other other people's names for them. Yeah. So the that 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 can be a powerful thing that can be a, a a big thing. And you do need names for people in your con worlds and you need to like think about like what what do they call themselves versus what other people call them? And what does that say about the history of how groups came into contact? Yep. And I think that also you can kind of take it to additional levels and think what what counts as a group right we yeah. we have a group for first nations or you know indigenous peoples or whatever as a whole group that becomes a, a name that we put on a bigger chunk that perhaps 
would be seen in different ways from other people, right? Um, maybe a particular group like Ho-Chunk may not have originally conceived of every person living, you know, in the Americas as being in, you know, in that group or something like that. Right. Um, or, you know, the notion of having racial groups and oh, which, well, which racial groups and those types of things. Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's another thing because like, um, race, and this is something to consider for con worlds because consider if your con world would even have a concept like race, because it's race as we understand it now is something that sort of come, came up what like 1500s or something. And it, before that people, you know, race is separate from ethnicity. And before that people recognized different ethnicities and they did recognize that people from different places looked different but they didn't like put down those phenotypes and try to classify people that by that um, until people started developing racial theories and you know those racial theories fed into the the construction of racism and everything. But um, yeah, there's an entire field I think that studies um, historical texts and especially in classical antiquity. Um, I was actually reading something recently about this. Um, they were looking at one of the hero figures during the Trojan War. I think it was Memnon, who's mm -hmm. um, described as Ethiopian. Um, mm -hmm. And talking about that in, in terms of the construction of... So so it's not like race didn't exist. It's I think it's very difficult for people in 2017 to think about and fully understand what was happening in a very different cultural context as far as that was concerned. Because... In that specific case, you also have the fact that, like, if you're culturally Roman during the Roman Empire, even if you're not a citizen, you are going to be treated differently from someone who has not adopted the Roman culture. And the same thing goes with Greece and Hellenization. So, like, if you're a Syrian who's Hellenized, you're going to be in a very different job prospects arena than, you know, like your friend down the street. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, they're, they're, it, people sort of divided divided people up um uh differently and different co that that just happens anywhere but moving back to jake's point it's like the idea of native americans as a coherent group probably happened it, you know would only have have happened after colonization after europeans came and then there was something to define native americans against or for Europeans to, to, to define all of these people. Um, right. And uh, so uh, calling them whatever they called them. And and so that that is an interesting thing. Um, uh, another tidbit, um, Ho-Chunk, the word wonk, uh, means man, right? Or person. But it has also taken on the, uh, the meaning of like Native American person. And I think that might be reflected uh reflective of them needing to have terminology to refer to like native americans as a group and they just grab like okay this means person so we'll 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 call call native american people people <laughs> yeah um yeah yeah and i think this goes into i think something we were saying um you know, it, as we were chatting about this, is that identity is also a process of othering. Mm -hmm. So people don't tend to, like, cluster on an identity unless there's something that they aren't. Right. Where, you know, like, 
if if you and like everyone around you is you know like doing something and you know is perfectly content with doing whatever it is that you've been doing for generations, you're probably not going to notice it unless you see that there's a contrast between it and something else. So like, let's say that like you live in a city, you've never left it, but then you go move someplace, um, someplace else where, you know, people aren't speaking your language or they're speaking a different dialect and you come to know the, the speakers of your native language in that area who probably are going to use the language slightly differently because it's also an identity process at the same time that it's, you know, maintaining one's, like, native, like, identity linguistically. Right. And that gets into the way people are named, too, because people who, like, prefer naming themselves with more universal identities are often actually the people who have more power in the society. There's there's the old thing, you know, in social justice cir- circles, the of there's this idea of, like, a white man gets to be just a human, and then a white woman is a woman, and then a black woman is a black woman, right? Uh, the the whole idea of who you consider to be like the default, and then those people are usually the, the more powerful people in society, and they often, like, prefer for people not to, like, distinguish identities because that kind of, like, hides the, the way that... Um, that different identities shape how people are treated in society. Um, that, you know, that can, that can figure into all sorts of power relations and stuff. Yeah, I think that's a good point. The, the notion of kind of the, the unmarked case, right? The right. normalized case. Yeah. Right. Um, I think there was, um, uh, and that's, that's with all kinds of identities. Um, I even saw a, um, a talk about like dialect variation on the border regions between Scotland and England and talking about how like the English people were more likely to identify themselves as British rather than English, whereas the Scottish side, it was more common for them to be- identify themselves as Scottish and not British. And that kind of thing. It's another case of this like sort of maybe a, a bit more power and also more like considered the default within the society and then they prefer that that uh generic. Yeah. Lots of K. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I think too it's um so like there's a so in the the con worlds that I have, there's one group that ended up moving to the city of a region that they conquered. Um, mm-hmm. And so they also maintain um, the language they had, but they're not actually considered to be the same by the people in the region where they came from. Mm-hmm. So, like, you've got the, the Shiji and the Galasuhi, and then you have the Menashi, who would consider themselves to be um, to be Shiji. But the um, the reason they're called the Menashi is because it's a slang term for, you know, Menarka Shiji. Um, so it's... So, yeah, I think I think it's also... Like really interesting in the border areas, um, you know, in, in thinking about ways of like language resistance, um, people who tend to be on good terms with their neighbors, I think, are more likely to have positive cultural exchanges with neighbors and not, you know, make lines in the sand. Um, and I think that I think that um, it's so. So this is slightly out of my depth, but I think that like in Canada with the um, so like I have Quebecois ancestry, um, you know. Before we were in the U.S., we were in Canada, and um, 
in in Quebec, um, there's a lot of you know very very strong you know traditional adherence to the French language, and in France, a lot of the slang derives from English because that's something that people are exposed to in the media a lot, and so there are some cultural differences with how people decide to affiliate. Oh. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Like taking the global language to to get modern slang. That's a, an interesting. I I you hear a whole lot of just because of the prestige of a lang of English and the the breadth of English, the the power of English in media, I think. You hear these stories a lot of like artists in France or Belgium or something who like prefer to make music and stuff in English and they often come up with these ideas of like oh English is very expressive and 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 things like things like that I prefer creating in English for some reason and I mean a whole lot of it is probably they can make a lot of money uh selling music to English speakers and also they just have absorbed this like cultural dominance of, of English. Uh, so that's another thing. Um, thinking of like a real world example of what you're talking about with the, the Menashe, like that, that did, you know, that happened in colonial territories um, when uh, in the Spanish colonization of uh, the Americas, um, descendants of Spanish people were called who were born in the Americas were called criollos and they were considered like one level beneath the European Spaniards, right, in the social hierarchy. And then below them were the the various mixed race groups and then, uh, you know, indigenous people and Africans below that. Uh, but so that was the, that was like even, you know, they gave a name to this group and even though it's, like the same ethnic group that speaks the same language, they got other just because they were like born in the colonies versus born in Europe. Uh, so there, there's there there can be a lot of places. It just there can be just a lot of places where people get um, people divide uh, identity uh, for for good and ill, <laughs> often for ill. But anyway, yeah. So um, should we talk some about kind of the more indirect ways that we identify. Well, people. yeah, definitely. And that often is more into like dialect. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, some people use like the term sociolect or social dialect mm -hmm. way to distinguish someone's speech socially, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess pretty much any, any chunk of language that we, a level of language that we can talk about, there are, generally ways people distinguish, you know, from the phonological level to the pragmatic level or, you know, anywhere. Uh, mm. I don't know if anyone wants to talk about anything well, in particular. I mean, just in general. So like uh, everybody likes to identify accent. Mm. So that's an accent is just phonology and people don't necessarily like people are aware of X, but Often, like if you if they try to imitate accents, they I, imitate like some key feature mm -hmm. of of someone's dialect. Like you know, if someone is trying to imitate a southern accent, uh, they often will uh, m uh, 
go from I to ah, right? Um, so that's that's an interesting thing of um, of the, the you know when people recognize accents and then people imitate or even make fun of accents too. Um, and there's uh, you listed morphological change, and uh, I think this actually gives us like so you. You gave us the example of plural U forms in various dialects of English, right, Jake? Um, uh, I, I think maybe Kay wrote that. Or at some Kay, point did you that put I... that in? Yeah, I threw I threw in a link to that. It was um to it was it was in Atlas Obscura because they collated all of all of these things together into one place that otherwise on the internet would be on multiple on multiple articles. And also, I was looking for something that wasn't paywalled uh-huh. um so um yeah so it's y'all yuns yens and yous um and yeah it's it's really with everybody's trying to cope with the fact that we now only have one you by making a new plural you and the way that you do it is highly dependent on geography and so yeah so and, it, and it's i think it gets into both you know like with people who like i've heard i think um I think yens described as like cute by people, but um, <laughs> y'all is the word that I actually have seen, um, you know, people, you know, educated people. And I think this goes back to, you know, like what's the educated preferred way of speaking versus what's the way that like marks you as, you know, like not having received an education or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and y'all is the one that tends to in academic circles, if somebody uses it is, is pretty risky and there are pieces um by people online who are talking about how you know they're from like south carolina or they're from alabama or they're from someplace in the south and how in addition to having to learn how to be a scholar they had to learn how to speak standard american english because um the fact that they were using things like y'all and all of that was actually inhibiting their ability to um, be taken as seriously as their peers which is you know, pretty awful. And that's, I think, where it gets into intersectionality a little bit because it's it's often, um, you know, it, it's a geographical um, region that's often, like, under-resourced in addition to the fact that, you know, you're moving to a new city. In many cases, you're moving into academia. There might be some class things at work as well. Um, and so th- there are a lot of um, a, a lot of things like this. There's, there's a couple things with y'all in that... Um there's there's a couple of different stigmatized groups that use it. There are um, Southern American English speakers, um, and there are Black English speakers also use y'all. I think the usage of y'all is a bit different in the those those different dialects, but they both use that form, uh, and then that becomes an identi- identity marker for those groups and can get stim- stigmatized by association with those groups. I come from a place where where all y'all is used. It's like optional for disambiguation mostly. It's not it's not like necessarily necessary, but it's you know fully grammaticalized. You can say all y'all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 like nearly fully grammaticalized as just a pronoun. Um, some people s- still say you all though. Um, but anyway. Um, that's an interesting thing is that these different solutions to this problem of English has no, um, 
distinction in uh, in the second person, you get lots of different dialects just making their own solution to this, right? And that uh, that 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 could happen anywhere, wherever you have some sort of uh, a um, uh, a gap in 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 a paradigm or or just something new that speakers need to do that 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 will happen spread across different dialects and then y'all is the one that there's sort of a simultaneous actually stigmatization of it right as you're talking about probably dealing with like the identities of where it originated but on the other end of it um I'm seeing online that using y'all seems to be, like, trendy for some people. And people are, like, you know, starting to just adopt it, like, more and more. Which, that's fine with me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yes. they are. Yeah. So, it gets it gets into... It's, it's, it's one of those things that's, that's uh, um, a little, like, back and forthy. Um, but, uh, yeah, and... There are so many things that so like that's like a, a morphological thing. There are um, phonological things of of how people pronounce different things. Uh, there's it can get and sometimes it can get uh, in get political. Um, so I can think of one example. Um, a uh, teacher told me a Chinese teacher told me that um, there was a period. In mainland China, where okay, so for some background, so standard Mandarin has a has retroflexes, right? Shi, zhi, chi. In many dialects, including southern Chinese and the dialects in Taiwan, uh, the the or the um the Mandarin dialects in southern China and in Taiwan, those merge with si, ci, and uh and ci. Right, the the um, the the dental uh, fr- um, fricative and affricates, and so for a bit, since there were a lot of famous like Taiwanese musicians, it became sort of trendy to imitate those accents by merging the 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 retroflexes into the the dentals. So pronouncing things the way that they do in Taiwan to a point where. Um, at least the teacher told me the the Chinese censors cracked down on people imitating a Taiwanese accent on television. So because it became like a political thing at that point. So or at least the Chinese government perceived it as a political thing. So like a and linguistic identity can become a social like holdback or it can be explicitly political. Uh yeah, I, I think that's important. I also wanted to just um, like to bring this further than the notion of kind of regional dialects and just um, like I think the kind of social dialect can exist inside of a situation where people would, non non linguists would imagine that the people are speaking the same dialect or the same, you know, but mm-hmm. because of their social position, like whether, you know, um, women versus men or something like that, that there's just a, a different way of speaking mm-hmm. that is just like, just how, you know, like you're in the same household, but because of your position, you're going to speak differently. Um, and mm-hmm. you're, you know, it's not a regional issue or a borrowing thing, or it's just, that's how that 
society has developed that linguistic situation. Right. Regional is the easy part, but you get into sociolects. And, I mean, there are ethnic sociolects, there are gender sociolects, um... There are class sociolects. Lower class people in New York do not speak the same way as upper class people in, in New York, as uh, Labov famously fa- was studying. Uh, um, he, he was, I mean, that was a study of actually people who were serving various classes of people in stores, right? And finding that they were speaking like their customers. Um, but yeah, the, the, there's... Um, and women don't always talk the same way as men, which is, that's an interesting thing because then you can get into all sorts of gender things. And if in a patriarchal society, if women are speaking differently than men, that may not necessarily be stigmatized on its own. The way that women speak sometimes is policed and and stigmatized, but also it can be more stigmatizing to call to for a man to be speaking the way a woman stereotypically speaks right or or something like that it's uh, um like cross-cutting thing basically any kind of like discriminatory behavior you see in any social marker you see in language yeah and i think this um so people who are really interested in gender and how it um works linguistically um I think that I'm pronouncing this person's last name in the ballpark, um, but Eichenwald um, and how gender shapes the world um, describes a lot of this. Um, and so there is, I think, a chap- one chapter definitely focuses on a lot of the social contexts of gender across a wide sampling of languages. And one of the most valuable things about this work in particular is that um, Eichenwald focuses a lot on non-Western languages, so uh, things outside of the Indo-European language family. So, which which I found very useful because I think that it's it's really important. But um, some of the stuff that Eichenwald pointed to are Japanese, also Lakota, with gender exclusive languages because you don't really have a choice. Gender variable ones um, where speech patterns. Um, tend to cluster around specific speaking styles, but then also there are a few, um, I think, um, Inuktitut um, languages where the terminal consonants, like the consonant structures that people use are different depending on their gender. And so that's where identity is like literally impacting the way that you form words with your mouth. So right. your gender is, identity can be grammaticalized into the language in some cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> And I think, and I think that the um, Inuktitut ones were specifically given in this book because they're pronunciation based. So it's it's a it's even I think more intrinsic than most of the grammatical variation that that she's looking at. Um, right. But I think even like in English, um, women tend to use um, more buffering um, before um, asking for things or for expressing ideas. So. Um, like when I was a lot younger, I would often say things like, um, you know, it would be a really good idea if you could get around to it maybe sometime in the future, you know, do this. I would, I would buffer, I would buffer a lot. <laughs> um, uh-huh. so, so that's a very extreme form, but they have a Chrome extension that people can actually get to see how much of that, um, that speech, um, the, the mediated speech that people are actually putting into like emails to try to make them more direct. 
Wow. But you can also flip you can also flip in the other direction with that because like there's this there's this sweet spot between politeness in register and direct language and not having too much mediated speech that's really, really, really hard to get when you're second guessing yourself. <laughs> yeah. I mean I, I I kind of I am I am very, you know, skeptical of tools that are intended to help people write better or speak better that because just of the the way that computers work with language is not the way that humans do it. But I'm you know it can help people I guess. Um, you know I I use spell check. That's about all that I'm uh, I I like ever use. But you know sometimes I that that there there can be some individual variation in that. Obviously, Every, it, when we talk about like dialects like even each dialect is a group of idiolects and like some some men can can could uh do as much you know buffering and stuff as as women which sort of leads into that brings into that idea of you know um you might get stigmatized for uh for for speaking too much like a woman um I think it's less likely to happen with that kind of thing just because it's more under the radar. Whereas, like, the grammaticalized, like, things like what Lakota has different particles and the, the Inuktitut having different consonants in the end, those are those are probably more salient than these, like, pragmatic things that you're mentioning. But it's, it, there's, I think the thing for conlangers to be drawing from all of this conversation first. Um, one is think about what identities are in your world. And the world, the identity divisions, obviously your ethnic divisions are going to be like something that you're actually working on, right? Because, I mean, you're creating languages, you're creating, probably creating ethnic groups that speak that. Uh, but also, you know, you can think about, you know, okay, you have a con world that has different concepts of gender than what we have in our world, right? Yeah. Um, uh, that is something that you have to take into account and talk about um, where are these different gender identities in society? How are they, are they recognized and named? And how is someone's gender identity like marked in their speech? Um, and also in translation, like, because they also have that problem too. It's like if you're moving between languages with multiple gender identities beyond just binary, but they have different genders in a translated text. How do you crosswalk between everything involved? Right. Because they might not even mutually overlap with one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's the lots of, lots of different things. So like what identities are you indexing? There can also be like, depending on class hierarchies, you know, what, what things I mean we didn't even touch on uh yet I mean in very very hierarchical societies you can get nuts with stuff you can get like you know if you watch Chinese historical dramas uh, like different like levels of the imperial hierarchy have or different pronouns different first person pronouns the emperor has his own first person pronoun nobody else uses uh and then there's one for like imperial officials and then one for concubines. So that it can get really crazy in very like 
super formal stratified situation. Um, but then even like in normal, like, you know, outside of the halls of power, you can still get like things like, um, I mean, you want to talk about pronouns, even any, any language that has formality distinguished in second person pronouns or in any pronouns, uh, there's like this, the whole different dance when you're speaking Spanish and choosing between tú and usted, right? The like, okay, I, is that emotional closeness? Is it like the hierarchy? Is it's all kinds of things? And we've talked about that before. But okay, coming back, um, there's a couple things. First of all, is like what are identities that are indexed, and how do people name those identities? How do different groups of people name those? Uh, a second thing is any any part of the language can have variation. And any variation can be seized upon to get to distinguish people. Um, another thing is, like, people can actually change what variant they use based on these associations that come up. Like, they, they like um, associating something with a group can even be, like, a self-fulfilling prophecy. An example of that, I talked to some people who talked about how... so. The, the two variants of ask, ask and axe, right? Mm -hmm. Ask is currently standard. Um, both of those variants go back to Old English. And you for a long time, you would hear axe in lower class white dialects up until fairly recently. But at some point, um, there was a point where axe got associated with black dialects. And because black people were stigmatized, white people moved away from the Axe variant. So now it's almost exclusively black people who say Axe, whereas before it wasn't necessarily that distinction. So it's like it got associated with them and then other people, for fear of being associated with the, the stigmatized group, which, you know, this is a horrible thing that people do they moved away from that variant. Yeah, I think that's kind of an interesting situation where like you you can have a couple different things going on. One, people may just kind of switch in and out depending on context, but then also people may develop kind of their like natural d dialect to shift over time, you know, even within one person's lifetime. Mm -hmm. you know? And and it can definitely be kind of identifying like group identity being the the catalyst of making those changes in very specific ways. Yeah, um, I I have a note that uh, I don't have this verified, but um, apparently Gandhi moved from having a more British English to kind of a a more Indian sounding English later in his life, and mm. clearly that you know a shift that shows his affiliation realigning. Yeah. Over time, that's a that's a different that's a different sort of uh, thing than what uh, what I was talking about. So he's he's moving to like affirm his group affiliation with Indian by adopting more Indian English, right. rather than British English. That's that's interesting. Um, okay, so we are coming up on the time that Kay has to leave, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, well. Um, then I think we're going to wrap up either of you, Kay, um, 
I'm going to ask you first, do you have any like final thoughts you want to share with people? Identity is really, really fun to play with in constructed languages because as you figure out more and more of what the parameter space you're working in is, you get to be more and more creative about what you actually do linguistically as you're working on a language. Like you can add all kinds of really fun things. You can add different types of like pronouns, even like going beyond just, you know, which like genders you have and how they're reflected in pronouns. You can do all kinds of things with formality. You can do things with inclusiveness and exclusiveness. You can do just all sorts of fun things there. You can do fun things with register. Um, you can have different vocabulary terminologies that are coming from, you know, like the seafaring people we always trade down with at the ports that people know are borrowed terminologies instead of, you know, like native words. You can do all kinds of like really, really, really cool and really, really fascinating things that can give a conlang like a lot of layers of depth. Um, and also that if you plan to use in creative settings will also help spark a lot of the types of interactions between characters in a setting that are going to seem natural and not, you know, there are these two people with talking heads who are down by the docks trying to barter over fish. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, you know, if, if you can always describe, like, by the way he pronounced his R's, I knew yeah. it's, it's a great thing to add in. But, you know, you have to you have to be thinking about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, or if it's... Uh, if you're saying guttural, though, make sure that the language actually has a lot of guttural consonants. Like, oh, we don't like the word guttural here. Guttural. I, yes. I don't know what guttural means if you describe something as guttural. So uh, <laughs> try to try to try to find some other way to describe that. Um, uh, okay, Jake, do you have any um, any other thoughts? No, I think that's um, that's the idea. Is that pretty much anywhere that you can tweak. The language that then it can create some sort of social division and that i guess the other side of that is that i might call them like social allophones like not not every difference is necessarily like socially meaningful i guess right um, i mean any there's going to be lots of variation any particular variation might be seized on but not all of them like there's 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 you know like people can identify where someone's from even when you may take a whole lot of markers out and like just identify by intonation but intonation is not always like salient front of mind when people are thinking of how other so anyway well with all of that um i'm gonna say everybody go work on variation and work on sociolinguistics in your in your con worlds and 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 how language is relating to identity and i'm gonna say happy conlanging thank you for listening to conlangery you can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com you can also follow us on facebook twitter and tumblr our web space is provided by the language creation society our site was designed by bianca richards and our theme music is by null device Conlangery is under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike license. You are free to use our show for any non-commercial work as long as credit is provided to Conlangery Podcast and you use a similar Creative Commons license. Conlangery is supported by our listeners. Please visit patreon.com slash conlangery to give your support. Thank you.